0: Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan.
1: Thanks for taking a few minutes to hang out with us today. We know that there are millions of podcasts to listen to, and we're
0: grateful you're choosing us. Yeah, Tim. And let's do a quick shout out to the many people who have left us reviews recently. We really appreciate those ratings and reviews, and it's not for the reasons you think. It's not just because... It's a big ego boost for us, Tim. Wow, it sure feels good. Though. Of course <laughs> it feels good. And we do really like the nice words being said about us and our work. However, when you leave a review or a rating, it impacts the algorithms that both Apple and Spotify use to offer suggestions to people who are just a bit curious about behavioral science podcasts. So what you're saying is that leaving a review is like a pay it forward kind of thing, right? Yeah, sort of. Everyone who leaves a nice review or a five star rating is actually helping other people learn about behavioral grooves. Oh,
1: well, that's cool. Okay, but The reason that you, meaning the listener, are actually listening today is to hear about our guest, Adam Zeman. Adam has a medical degree and a PhD in philosophy from Oxford University. He's been a lecturer and a professor of cognitive and behavioral neurology and has published extensively on visual imagery and forms of amnesia occurring during epilepsy.
0: Adam has also published an introductory to neurology for the general audience called A Portrait of the Brain. And more importantly, well, Actually, most importantly, Adam was one of the researchers who identified the interesting medical condition regarding our mind's eye uh, that we're going to talk about and name those conditions, Uh, one called aphantasia and one hyperphantasia, which is the reason why at least I really wanted to talk to him.
1: Yeah. Okay. So uh, what exactly is aphantasia, Kurt? And why is it so important to
0: you? Well, we'll we'll hear from Adam in just a couple minutes, talk about it. But the reason I'm interested in it is because I have it. I have aphantasia. Ah, And aphantasia ah. describes how my brain works when it comes to active visual imagination and memory. So when you say the word elephant, a lot of people imagine the visual image of an elephant in their brains. People with aphantasia like me, we don't. I don't see anything, so I don't visualize that elephant in my brain. That is fascinating. Okay, but you remember
1: images like the faces of your kids and you recognize the pizza shop on the corner stuff, right? Yeah,
0: I do. I mean, I can describe to you what an elephant looks like or my daughter's face, but I don't visually see them in my mind. Even if I close my eyes, it's more like a description for me being read in a book. An elephant has a trunk. It's gray. It's huge with large legs and large ears and a skinny tail. Yeah, it's fascinating.
1: It's absolutely fascinating. And our conversation with Adam gets into what's happening in the brain as we
0: process these things. Okay, so Groovers, it's time to sit back with a fresh pour of fascinating ideas on how we visualize and remember the world or... In my case, don't visualize the world <laughs> and listen to our conversation with Adam Zeman.
1: Adam Zeman, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you very much. We are glad to have you here and we would like to get started with a little speed round. We'd like to first ask, are you a coffee guy or a tea guy?
2: Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. Both, really, but I guess tea if I had to had to choose. First, certainly, first thing in the day.
0: Oh, okay. Are you a little bit of both? Is that? Yeah, a little
1: bit of both. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know,
0: yeah. that's a, we have that answer quite often. So there, it's okay. If you had to choose between you having dinner with your favorite athlete, musician, or actor. Who would you pick to go to dinner with? Probably a musician. Okay. Oh, Excellent. You just, just piqued Tim's interest, and now you're, you know, he's gonna be going all over that. So there you go. <laughs> I'll I'll hesitate since this is the speed round on uh
1: further questions, but we might come back to that later. Okay, so when it comes to living a good life, is psychological richness more important than happiness and meaning? Wow, all
2: are very important. Um <laughs> Um, I'll go for psychological richness,
1: yeah. Okay, okay, good, okay. Love that, more on that.
0: All right, last speed round question. You know, we're going to get into some different things. So here, so in your opinion, does having aphantasia limits one's ability to be successful in the world? Absolutely not. Ah, this is good as a as a aphantasia myself. I am glad that that's the answer. But you have done a fantastic amount of research actually coining the term. and, and I'd just like to start off if uh, my first question, real big question to you is, can you tell us about your research with uh, patient MX and how that kind of led you into this world of aphantasia?
2: Yes, certainly. So I encountered MX about 20 years ago. He was referred to a neurology clinic because he had lost his mind's eye. He'd lost the ability to visualize. I was handed the the referral letter, in fact, by the head of my department who said, Adam, I think this is your kind of thing. <laughs> he, knew he, he knew that I was interested in in slightly unusual neurological symptoms. And this to me was very unusual. I hadn't come across loss of the ability to visualize before at all. Uh, so uh, I was intrigued to, to to meet MX, and indeed he gave a very compelling description. Uh, he was a very intelligent man in his mid-sixties. He'd previously visualized very vividly. He's quite artistic. He used to enter a vivid visual world when he read a novel. He used to visualize to help get himself to sleep, and he'd lost all those elements of visualization abruptly following a procedure on his heart, a coronary angioplasty. So I was intrigued. After a while, I I got around to looking at the neurological literature and discovered that this symptom had in fact been described over the previous century, but it was fairly rare. And MX was a very, he was a really ideal uh, research participant because he was very sort of even-tempered and articulate and interested in what we were in, in, in the possibility of research. So we spent quite a long time working with him and in the end did a functional brain imaging study in which we showed that whereas most people, when they try to visualize, activate visual parts of the brain, MX did not. Even though when he looked at things, he activated visual parts of his brain normally. So there was a kind of disjunction between visualization and and vision in his case.
0: Very interesting. And then that got... Caught up in a. And correct me if I'm not following the the kind of progression of this, but that got taken up by uh, was it Science Magazine or
2: Discover? Yeah, it, it was a science journalist called Carl Zimmer, who works ah. for, works works mainly for the New York Times, but he wrote a piece in Discover. Discover, that's it. Which I think is sort of an American equivalent of our New Scientist, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he wrote a very nice piece about the the paper we published on MX and the the brain imaging study we did. And then over the course of the next few years, I and my co-authors had a kind of trickle of messages from people saying, you know, I'm just like this guy. (laughs) And I always have been. I've always recognized that there's something a little bit different about me. Um, When other people reminisce about last year's holiday or their wedding or the last party they went to, they seem to be having, having an experience which is a bit visual. And I don't get that at all. So they'd, they'd often realize that they were a little different for, for many years. They also very often said, when people you talked about seeing with the mind's eye, I'd always assumed that was a metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Now I realize it's literal.
0: That's exactly my, yeah. my take. I was always like, oh, oh well, that's just a metaphorical. Yeah, I, you know, I can remember things. I just don't visualize them when I remember them. And so I thought that was a metaphorical take. So
2: And they said, they said they'd never seen the point of counting sheep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> because they can't
2: see
1: them. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> so, is- um, so over time, we had about 21 or so contacts of that kind. And we did a couple of things. One was to send everyone who got in touch a the vividness of visual imagery questionnaire, which is just a way of quantifying the subjective vividness of imagery. And these folk were all scoring down at 16 over 80, which is floor, the lowest possible score. So it's actually when invited to visualize a series of scenes, they were saying that they, they just thought about them. There was no no visualization, no visual experience. And then we sent a, a sort of common sense questionnaire asking a variety of questions, probing possible associations, which I'm sure we'll go on to talk about. And then when we wrote about these folk, we decided that there, there, there needed to be some term to describe this phenomenon because there wasn't one. There were one or two... Rather unwieldy terms in the literature like defective re and <laughs> visual, visual irreminiscence, which we didn't think were, t- were terribly catchy. I <laughs> know. So, so I consulted a, a friend of mine who studied classics, and he suggested that we, we plunder Aristotle and borrow Aristotle's term for the mind's eye, which is fantasia, tag an A on it on the end, uh, the tag an A at the front, and that was how a fantasia was, was born as a description of absence of the mind's eye. And we described these. Twenty-one focus examples of lifelong or congenital aphantasia, and it sounds you like you you may be in that same band.
1: Well, it's fascinating. Uh, so oftentimes, uh, especially in the in the world of behavioral types of things, whether it's neuroscience or psychology or even sociology, we see a lot of the researchers are acting on sort of a me search approach like they they like they're they're interested in a topic because they are seeing the world in a particular way that's not the case for you it's not i
2: i have very average a uh, very average score <laughs> on on the, the VBIQ um, i'm I, i'm neither aphantasic nor hyperphantasic. that's the term we coined to describe people at the other end of the spectrum who say that for them visualization is as vivid as real a uh, uh, seeing.
0: yeah yeah. I know in some of your talks, I've I've listened to you describe aphantasia Maybe is not just one thing. Is, is my my understanding your kind of take on that? That there, you're again potentially on causes, but also in just how it, it manifests itself. Are you? Is absolutely
2: absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure it's. I think it's a feature of experience, and I think it can occur in a number of different contexts and with a number of different associations. So um, I guess one. Key element, sort of dimension of variation, has to do with whether it just affects vision, yep. or whether it affects all the senses. And in fact, although our focus initially was on vision, it turns out that most people with aphantasia, not not by no means all, but most, seem to lack sensory imagery across the board. Mm. So most people with aphantasia say they don't have much of a mind's ear, or a mind's fingertip, uh, or a mind's nose, so to speak. There are some people who say it just affects vision, and they have they can actually hear a symphony in their head perfectly well. But the majority in our work. Uh, the majority of folk with aphantasia seem to have weak or absent imagery across the board. Um, So that's one respect in which there's some variation. Um, Another is that a group of people with aphantasia describe really serious difficulties with face recognition. Mm. They have prosopagnosia, but that seems to be a a specific subgroup. Um, There's another group who say that they have really very thin autobiographical memory. That seems to be a more common association, but again it's certainly not present in everyone. Uh, there's a group of people at fantasia who are on the autistic spectrum so another another subgroup and then uh, another respect in which there seems to be variability is is with respect to dreaming mm. and this is really interesting i think so the majority of people at fantasia dream visually yeah so they know they know what imagery is like from their dreams even though they can't conjure imagery during the, the waking day um Wow. Uh, that's not true of everyone. There is a group. There's a group of, sort of fifteen or so, twenty percent of people that you the say they don't dream at all, or, or and there are people who dream in a visual ways. They dream in plot or in emotion. So yes, I think I think it's likely to be a bit of a mixed bag, and, and that, that isn't too surprising because the, the the neural networks that are involved in visualization are quite complex, and you'd expect them to be able to to, to break down in more than one way.
1: Uh, which totally makes sense, right? That it's it's not a simple answer. But but when you when you think about a sort of the the factors that lean towards the aphantasia, what percentage of the population do you think have some lack of you know primary visualization of a, a primary image imagery?
2: So it's I think it's somewhere around three percent of people fall into our fantastic group. It depends a bit on how you how you define it. At the moment, it's it's really defined. On the basis of subjective report, essentially, we can, we can talk about other ways of, of, of trying to diagnose it, so to speak, but it's primarily defined on the basis of subjective report. And there's a question about where you put your cutoff. So if you're using the VVIQ, you could restrict the term to people who score 16 at floor. We've been accepting people who score up to 23. The average score is about 58. So you know, if you're in the 20s, you're still way way down, much lower than than most
0: and then on the opposite side, the hyperphantasia, again, is that is that included in that 3% or is that a, a different number there?
2: That's, that's a different number. So three th- around 3% are aphantasic. Hyperphantasia seems to be rather more common. So if you look at the kind of bell curve for imagery vividness, it's it's crowded up towards the top end. There are more people with high scores than there are with very low scores. Oh, interesting. Again, the the percentages depend on where you put your cutoff, but somewhere between five and 10% of people would fall into the hyperphantasia group.
0: And, and I wanna make sure that for our listeners, we we explain hyperphantasia because it, it, as the aphantasia is the lack of a mind's eye, hyperphantasia is, how would you describe that?
2: Hyperphantasia is having uh, an exceptionally vivid mind's eye so if you are if you are rating yourself on that vividness questionnaire, if you give yourself a score out of one out of five for a particular image, that says that you can't see anything; you're just thinking about it. If you give yourself a score of five out of five, that says that the image is as vivid as if you were really seeing it. And there are people who score 80 over 80 that's to say they when they visualize their experiences
0: is, is as if they were looking i just wow. i i can't imagine that that's just <laughs> just, just blows no. my mind as i'm sure it blows i mean when i talk to people about having this it blows their mind that that there isn't a visual image at all um as yeah. as i'm thinking about some or trying to read like if somebody asked me you know visualize an apple i i, I don't i i, I close my eyes and it is blank. It is, yeah, I can describe the apple. I can tell you what an apple looks like. I can do all of those things. I could draw an apple, but for me to visualize it inside of my brain is, it's not there. So,
2: so I mean, it's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because clearly clearly, your brain knows what apples look like because you can recognize them. So the the, the information is there, but somehow you can't use that information to generate the sensory experience which most people have when they visualize. Them. Yeah,
0: that's, it's it's fascinating to me. Oh. You had talked about um, obviously using the vividness of visual imagery questionnaire to kind of do a self assessment on this, but there are other ways that researchers are looking at identifying these. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? Yes,
2: sure. So the person who's done most work on this is an Australian vision researcher called Joel Pearson who works in Sydney. Yeah. I'll tell you about the, the couple of approaches that he's Developed most recently because I think they're rather sort of vivid in a way, and then come come on to the to where he started. So one bit of work that he, they've done very recently, which I think is really really neat, involves looking at pupillary responses. Yeah. So if you visualize, if you're a visualizer, and you imagine looking into the sun, your pupils will constrict. If you imagine looking into a dark cupboard, your pupils will dilate. That doesn't happen in people with aphantasia. So that's oh. that, that's a, that's a nice objective correlate. The wow. second interesting correlate has to do with, curiously, responses to to, to fearful stories. Yeah. So Joel, Joel and his colleagues read a series of participants, really, really scary stories. I must say, I don't recommend them. I didn't enjoy reading them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. They, they
0: okay. made my flesh
2: creep. And most people, when they're reading these stories, will have a, essentially will sweat, so they'll have a galvanic skin response. People with aphantasia don't. And Joel's explanation for that is that what mediates between the story and the the skin response is the visualization, ah. and he did a nice. There is a nice control ex- condition in that study showing that when people with aphantasia look at scary pictures, they do have a skin response. So it's not that it's not that you can't mount it; it's that it's that you aren't producing the the mediating image which allows you to to sweat when you hear a scary story. Yeah, when you when oh. you hear
0: it or read it versus seeing it, it doesn't it doesn't induce the same type of physical response because of that intermediary aspect of visualization that doesn't happen. So exactly, yeah, I read that study and it's just, it's fascinating, right. so yeah.
2: Right, very nice study. So those are two approaches. Then the, the third one, which is, I think, sort of the most technical, um, has to do with a technique which Joel Pearson has developed to measure the strength of imagery, which involves using binocular rivalry. So typically, if you show um, an image to, different images to the two eyes. Okay, So the left eye sees one, the right eye sees the other. Our brains, our brains don't normally fuse those images. They switch between them. Hmm. Yeah. You'll see one, then see the other, see one, see the other. Joel realized that if you ask people to visualize before you show them the images, you can bias the percepts. So if you're shown a a red square in one eye and a green triangle in the other, if you imagine red square before you're shown anything, that's going to bias you towards reporting red square. But that effect doesn't occur in people with aphantasia.
1: Oh my gosh. Oh my. Oh, this is this is just amazing I, I'm stunned at the kinds of differences there there are Kurt I, I had no idea you, you were suffering so much in your life <laughs> it's not, I'm not
0: <laughs> suffering at all
2: this is the thing is like well, we, should, we should come to that but that, that work was very reassuring to me because clearly you know one response to the news about Aventasia was, well, you know, how can anyone possibly know what's going on in someone else's mind? Yeah. Surely, surely this is a matter of semantics. People simply are using different words to describe the same experience. But I think work like Jill's shows that no, that's not right. People are actually identifying genuine differences in experience which correlate to behavioral differences.
0: Yeah, it, it is one of the interesting things. I When I do talk to people about this, they have a really hard underst- it, It's It's difficult for them to understand how People operate in a way that is unaccustomed to them. And they they do come back to me and, oh, well, you just you just interpreting this different or you're you know, they're, they're trying to tell me that that I am not just I'm not, you know. I actually do visualize. I just don't, you know yes. see it as visualization. And I'm like going, I, I really don't. I, I I don't have that ability. Mm-hmm. So with that, uh, one of the things that that people say is like then how do you go about life? How do you remember things? How do you do different things? and And I know that some of the work that you've done is kind of looked at, you know, what are some of the limitations and but what are also some of the potential advantages. And and the differences in how people actually behave in the world with these two styles, and even going so far as to the types of occupations that some people take on. Can you talk a little bit about that research?
2: Sure. So this was this was a rather nice and sort of to me unexpected but very straightforward finding. So we we just asked the people who've been in touch with us. So I should I should say after that we described those twenty one folk. Um, following Carl Zimmer's article in Discover and coined the term Aphantasia, we were then contacted by many thousands, about <laughs> 16,000 16, people got in touch. So quite a, quite a large postbag. And we, we responded as so far as we could in just the same way by asking people to complete vividness questionnaires and asking them some common sense questions. And one of those questions was, what do you do? And it turns out that if you have Aphantasia, you are a bit more likely to be working in science, maths, IT, I guess you might regard them as sort of more abstract. Okay. Way. Whereas if you are hyperphantasic, you are a bit more likely to be working in what is conventionally regarded as a creative industry. Yeah. But I should say there are many, many exceptions. So these are just statistical trends, but they're, but they're there and I think that's that's quite interesting. Clearly, fantasia uh, isn't a disadvantage in the sense that people are leading very productive, successful careers and as time's gone by, um, we've been contacted by you know highly impressive, fantastic people, including um, Ed Catmull, the, the recently retired president of Pixar, who won the Turing Prize for his sorry, Prize for his, his work in computer animation. Mm-hmm. And Craig Venter, who you know, entrepreneurial um, geneticist, who I think was the first person to decode the genome. Um, Blake Ross, who founded and created Mozilla Firefox. So. Very successful people getting by without without any imagery. Yeah. So, so can can reassure you about that. Also interestingly, in a in our more recent so we published one paper on the basis of questionnaire data and we then went on to do a study in which we actually gave people some behavioral tests and did some brain imaging. And the there's a small difference, but the people with athentasia have a slightly higher IQ than people with Ah, <laughs> Tim,
1: <laughs> There you go. I got yeah <laughs> I was I was waiting for that shoe to drop, honestly, Adam.
2: At least, at least in a small sample, so, <laughs> so, so no no sort of big disadvantage in terms of day to day life. The one um, the one area in which there is a kind of deficit, I think, uh, is autobiographical memory. Yeah. Again, not everyone, but it, that does seem seems that very commonly people with fantasia just have a bit more trouble pulling out the details of episodes from their past lives. It's not necessarily a disadvantage, I guess. Um, there are, you know, things you want to forget, but, but uh, autobiographical memory seems a little thinner.
0: Well, I know there's been some research too in um, patients with PSTD and some of those elements, the, the potential positive of, of not having the ability to, to visualize that and maybe some protection against some of those uh, types of, of kind of elements.
2: Yeah, so I think this is mainly at the level of anecdote, at least as so far as I'm concerned, still. But but it's it's a very consistent anecdote. So many people in Fantasia have told me I just seem to find it a little bit easier to move on mm. than others. You know, if I move from one town to another, or if I have a breakup, I'm not. I don't seem to be quite so haunted by it as as my friends and relations are, which which makes sense. Whether so, I mean, to what extent it genuinely protects against PTSD, I don't think, don't think we really know yet. But it might. It might. That's an interesting question.
1: Well, so, so Adam, in talking about all the, uh, the symptoms and effects, do we know what causes it? Do we know where the, the source of of Aphantasia is?
2: So we don't really. Um, we know we know quite a bit about the network of regions in the brain which is involved in visualisation in normal folk and you can kind of guess so it certainly involves visual areas when people visualize they do seem to activate visual areas to not as strongly as when they're actually looking but nevertheless to a detectable degree so visualization is a kind of echo of vision but when people are visualizing they are also activating areas in the frontal and parietal lobes which are involved in cognitive control because they're kind of making a decision to 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 do this with their minds. And they're also often activating areas which have to do with language and memory, partly because of the nature of the tasks involved when you get people to visualize. Now, we know that MX failed to activate those visual areas when he was invited to visualize. So there's one piece of the jigsaw. And then in our recent study published last year, we had one finding which I think was, I I find very interesting which involved resting state fMRI. So this is where you just get people to lie in the scanner and chill. Um, Their brains remain active, and it's possible to look at the brain's networks, which continue to sort of tick over, and to look at their interconnections. And we found that in people with aphantasia, there were weaker connections between regions at the front of the brain and visual regions than in people with hyperphantasia. And what that rather suggests is that in people with hypophantasia, if you have a thought, it's more likely to translate naturally into an image because you have, you know, speaking crudely, thinking areas of the brain are more strongly connected with seeing areas than than in people with aphantasia, where those connections are weaker. So I I think my money would be on differences in connectivity being relevant, and it may may be that they have at least some weak genetic basis because another finding from a questionnaire work has been that there does seem to be an increase likelihood of aphantasia in relatives of people who are aphantasic and an increased likelihood of hypophantasia in close relatives of people who are
0: ah uh, that's, that's fascinating. I, I do want to reach out to my siblings and, and just make them take the VVIQ and say, all right, see if there's yeah. any, any connections yeah. there as we're doing this. I find it interesting. So, so I am one of those who um, I dream visually, right? I have very strong visual dreams. And it's actually one of the things that that moment between like waking and and um, sleeping that I know yeah. I'm about to sleep because I'm starting to see things in my mind's eye yeah. and I can that that it's a really interesting piece of yeah. having this cognitive element or, around that but the voluntary part of trying to visualize versus that involuntary part, what is some of the findings or what are some of the things that you're you're seeing there because again with with people, like me, and I, I know you said there's obviously others who have a full lack of the visual as well as other sensory components. I i do, I can, I can, the music part is fine, smelling all of those things. I can imagine what a steak smells like and different things like that. But the involuntary versus voluntary part is always fascinating for me.
2: Yeah. So I, I, we can't really um, offer answers from our own research, but I think it's possible on the basis of what we know about those, the differences between those states to. To, to speculate, at least. So, so when you are, when I'm asked, when I, if I ask you to visualize an apple, that, that involves the effort to to do so is going to involve engagement of those frontal parietal brain regions which are involved in cognitive control. Which, if you were able to visualize an apple, would sort of kick your visual system into action, having having consulted memory to uh, access what apples look like, um, and it would then use that knowledge from from memory to drive some activity in the visual system, which would which then you would then would would if you could visualize, give you that nice an image of a, of a red or a green apple whichever it may, may be. So essentially you're driving the visual system backwards top down um, when you when you visualize. Dreaming is probably very different. Dreaming is much more of a bottom up yeah. brain it, um, so the neurochemicals involved in controlling dreaming and much of the act the brain activity involved in dreaming sort of comes from the brain stem uh, and then the activity from the brain stem is propagated up into the hemispheres rather than the top down process which uh, is, is operating when you're visualizing or trying to visualize voluntarily. So that would that would be my caricature of the difference between the two. Dreaming is bottom up. Auditory visualization is top down. What, one of the interesting things is that there are many intermediate states, aren't there? Like reading a book. Mm. So you know, when you read a novel, or at least when I read a novel, I, I haven't decided to visualize, but it happens. Mm. Uh, how? What about you? When you, if you read a novel, do you, <sighs> you enter, enter any kind of visual world?
0: You know, I don't think so. Uh, I haven't. I haven't actually ever really thought about the reading part of this and, and visualizing, do I visualize it? Or again, is it more of the, you know, when I describe something, I can describe it because of, you know, it feels to me like is when you were talking top down versus bottom up, I've been trying to think about this for the past couple of weeks because knowing that this interview is coming up and like, how do I describe this? It's like, There's a wall going up between my what the visual is. I know there's the visual image uh, on the other side of that wall. And I could, you know, like I tell people it's like reading a story is, is what I typically do when I when I think of something and try to remember. It's like reading that story. It's not the visualization. It's not a movie. It's the reading of a book. And so I don't, but I, actually, in reading a book, I haven't really thought about. I'm going to have to go and read a novel and see if what what actually occurs. So there you go.
2: So many people, many people with aphasia have said that they don't really enjoy reading novels which have long descriptive passages because they don't, they just don't do anything for them. And another nice anecdote, which again has come up again and again, um, is people with aphasia saying, "I never have that problem in the cinema when a character from a book appears," and other people say, "Gosh, he doesn't look anything like I thought he did."
0: <laughs> I that? <laughs> oh, that's, a, I, yeah, that's another good thing. So I wonder if that's why I don't like long poetry that is very, you know, evocative of, of uh, you imagery. Know, imagery and various different things. It just doesn't do anything for me. So anyway.
1: Adam, you, first of all, I just, I'm so grateful for, for you as a science communicator. I mean, you're a scientist first and foremost, but, but the, the fact that you you thought about well you had this conversation with a friend and aristotle used this term and you with fantasia and f like you're developing terms and you're speaking in ways that are really accessible and you don't have to speak that way. And I'm just, first of all, I just want to say thank you for, for doing that. Um, because I think it's an important part of, of, the, of the science communication story. But you, t- you said something that really caught my attention a few minutes ago. And forgive me for jumping back. But you said visualization is an echo of vision. And I think that's a really cool idea. Can you, could you spend just a minute to tell us a little bit more about that?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, it's, I think it probably has quite wide applicability beyond vision. So, and I guess one of the special things about human beings is that we live a lot of our lives in our heads. We, we you know, we, we spend a lot of our time offline don't we, in, in one way or another. And what seems to be happening when we're offline is that we are, we're, we're simulating the world using the systems which at other times we use to engage with the world. So, you know, if you're an athlete, you might spend an hour or two rehearsing your next run or your next javelin throw, whatever it may be, and you're going to be using your, your motor system to do that. Um, if you're a musician you'll be you may well be running through a concerto you're going to play and you'll be using the parts of the brain that are involved when you're drawing your bow across your violin but also parts of the brain that are in that, that are involved in listening so we have we have this capacity to engage offline brain regions which uh just those brain regions which we use when we're performing activities online i think that's a very i think it's a rather a f- sort of fundamental fact about human brains yeah. um, but, Yep. Uh,
1: that's fantastic. It really is. It's a it's a great reminder that even though we're out in the world, um, we have the ability to to be inside, you know, uh, our heads and, and and playing stories and 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 um, thought processes and decisions and um, imagining, you know, future decisions and past yes, decisions. Yes, future
2: thinking. That's right. I mean, I think that's part of the story, which maybe I haven't mentioned, the kind of foundation for what I've said is that, of course. Even our perceptual experience is highly creative. Mm. We we only experience the world because of our because our brains are metabolizing sugar and oxygen and doing all the you know, that Experience is, is, a, is an act of creation. Yeah, and imagination is a kind of recapitulation of that act of creation. And, and in a way, imagination is less begins to look a bit less strange when you realize that we're. What
0: we do when we imagine is rather really like what we do when we doing. <laughs> doing, doing it are actually you know when we, when we just experience the yeah. yeah, we're always um, you know, thinking about human behavior and just different pieces. One of the things that Tim and I often um in the work that we do is just visual illusions and the the way that our brain sees something even when it's right in front of us that if you take closer look at it. Nope, that's not what's actually happening. Um, Again, because of exactly what you're talking about, our our brain is interpreting things and and making its own judgment upon things that aren't necessarily what is actually there. So
2: I guess, I guess dreaming is the most straightforward example, isn't it? You know, we're completely offline and yet we are making up Stories, storylines, and yeah. enjoying experiences without without it, the benefit of any sensory input at all, from
1: from
0: the bottom up. No from less. the bottom up. Yeah. yeah. All right. I know Tim is is in to talk about music, but I have one question before we get to oh. there, um, and and this is a purely selfish question, and I think I already know the answer, but um, if there's any other um, people who are listening who have aphantasia like me, if it's lifelong. Has there been any anybody that has identified on on moving from having aphantasia to being more normal in being able to to visualize with their mind's eye has that ever happened i, I believe it's happened with some people who have had it happen because of like mx through some other elements but is there any any from a lifelong congenial um aspect of that
2: Yeah, so i think that's if that happens, it's very, very rare. Okay. And quite a lot of people have said that they've tried, they've tried various sort of mental exercises to see if they can cultivate their imagery and, and they haven't succeeded. Yeah, that's me. So that,
0: that's me. I've been trying, okay.
2: so. I <laughs> yeah, suggest that there might be some biological limitation, I think. Yeah. yeah. but I but I emphasize again, it doesn't seem to be a handicap. You know, yeah. people are highly, highly creative, imaginative, productive, despite the lack of imagery. One footnote to that, which is perhaps worth mentioning, because it came as such a surprise to us, is that there's quite a large community of aphantasic artists. Ah. Oh. You know, I think we just, I and my colleagues had assumed that if you were aphantasic, you probably wouldn't be that interested in the visual world. But actually, on the contrary, there there are a a large group of artists who say that they think their aphantasia is a kind of stimulus to to artistic creativity, because if they want to see what things look like, they have to make them.
1: Oh, wow. I love that. I absolutely love that. Well, I wanted to jump back to our speedrun question about uh, having dinner. What you said, you'd you'd probably choose a musician. Is there anyone that came to mind that you'd like to have that dinner with?
2: <laughs> well, I recently had a, a conversation with David Gray. Do you know, he probably yeah. as an English.
1: Oh, yes, oh, I know, know him well.
2: Yes, well, that uh, that proved very very stimulating. He was an extremely good conversation partner, so I think that's probably why partly why uh, I like his music. That was that was partly why I, I came up with that choice. How
1: how did you come to just have a conversation with David Gray?
2: Well, I'm so I'm writing something uh, which touches on imagination and creativity, and I wanted to speak to a creative musician, and because I like like his work, <laughs> I, I got in touch and uh, tracked him down with with some difficulty, but eventual success. It, it, it was worth. Three.
1: Fantastic. So if you were, let, let, let's play this out just a little bit, uh, in your personal life, if you were to uh, be stranded on a desert island for a year, what musical artists would you take, one or two musical artists library would you take with you?
2: Yeah, well, curiously, in, in our run with this conversation, you said that I wasn't allowed to take Bach himself. Yeah,
0: <laughs> that's,
1: yes,
2: that's right. But, I, but, you... I, but, I, but I, I would take his music. <laughs> uh, Bach Bach oh, comes yeah, to mind. Okay. I would yeah. take the Billings and Fugues and the... And, yeah uh, I, I can't really imagine better company yeah there's something very, very sort of intimate and uh conversational about about books yeah well books,
1: uh, for uh, for good reason my god I mean he he changed the the course of uh you know the romantics but all all more classical and serious music for yeah. for the next uh, several hundred years so anybody else
2: uh, well there's, there's such a choice, isn't there? Maybe maybe I'd take Mendelssohn. I think the Mendelssohn oh. octet
1: would keep me very cheerful. <laughs> so have, interesting.
2: Wow. I have a violinist's daughter, and uh, I loved listening to her play that, so.
1: Yeah. That that is uh, that is fascinating. I would have guessed more. You know, I mean, we know a lot about Kurt, and I talk a lot about decision making and how we're novelty seeking. And so, you know, I, I I kind of would have anticipated something more like pop music or something from uh, a, a musician from your childhood or something like that. Yeah,
2: you know, I guess I'm fairly omnivorous. I'm like. I spent less time listening to modern music. I think. Yeah, David, I'd have to
0: take a look. Well, you're on a desert island. You're probably only having you know you know coconuts to eat, so you might as well just have <laughs> one type of music too. So there you go, um, Adam. Before we go, I do want to ask you just uh, if you can talk a little bit about some of the other things that you're doing. You have the Eyes Mind Project. Um, as well as the Extreme Imagination Conference. Just kind of, uh, can you give us a, a quick overview of what you're, what both of those are and and what you're trying to achieve with those?
2: Yeah, sure. So the, the Eyes, Mind project was uh, an interdisciplinary project. Curiously, it was funded by our Arts and Humanities Research Council rather than by a science organization. They were trying to encourage Scientific work that would involve people from the humanities. So we—it was a, actually a really enjoyable group. We had an art historian called John O'Means, who actually is the—I think he's the world's first neuro art historian. He created neuro discipline of neuro art history. Um, a philosopher Fiona McPherson, who's a sort of philosopher of perception, an artist Susan Aldworth, a, a postdoc who's a cultural historian Matthew McKissick, and a neuroscientist. And uh, we worked for together. We the group is Sort of just in existence. We we need another grant, I think, to to to, to <laughs> get, have a healthy existence. But we worked for four or five years together, and I've been involved in a number of interdisciplinary ventures, and they sometimes don't work. But this one did because we were all genuinely interested in each other's points of view, and and we willing to to spend a bit of time learning about e, about the kind of approaches we took. So we we worked together. Our remit initially was threefold. So to get a grant, it's probably the same in the states. To get a grant, you have to promise a lot. <laughs> yes. so we promised, <laughs> yeah. we promised we would read everything that had ever been written about visual imagery, and then kind of condense that into a history of previous thinking, which which we did. Um, we promised that we would do a meta-analysis of brain imaging studies of visualization, which we did, and we promised that we would create a register of people with aphantasia and hypophantasia, which 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 we began work on. So that's that, that was the the Eyes-Mind group, and I would say that the the kind of discovery or rediscovery of Aphantasia, because actually uh, Francis Galton knew about it in the 19th century, has opened a huge number of windows. I think there there are just an enormous number of questions to to investigate in future about the behavioral associations, the psychological and psychiatric associations, the neural basis, the genetics, there's masses to do. Um, Then the Extreme Imagination Conference um, grew out of the work of the Eyes-Mind group. We th- we thought that it would be good to bring together people with Fantasia and Fantasia. So I think it was the first meeting was 2019 in Exeter, which is yep. where, where I'm based, and we had about 130 or 40 participants, and it was great fun. Um, I was slightly worried that we might have a one group of people in the room who were feeling a bit hard done by because they didn't have imagery, and a, another group who were feeling rather pleased with themselves because they had lots of it. <laughs> <laughs> but in fact, it, it was a very it was very nuanced. People were were very uh, sort of open to the idea that there might well be advantages and disadvantages both ways, um, and I guess that was the that kind of created this the the beginnings of a community, which I think seems to have prospered since then. Um, there is now an organization called the Afantasia Network, which had a large number of people visiting its its website, and that held another conference virtually last year, which kind of picked picked up on our, our first conference. So I hope there will be other similar meetings in future, not least because the research, certainly the research that we've done has been very dependent on public involvement. We've really relied on people getting in touch through the web um, and then giving giving their time, which we're very grateful for.
0: Yeah. So if, if any of our listeners are interested, um, we'll put a link into the VVIQ so that they can go out because it, it anyone can go and take it um yep. and so we'll we'll make sure that that is available if you even if you if you think you're hyper Fantasia or aphantasia or even if you're just a, a normal joe like like tim um you know you, you go out and take it because i think it it adds to that body of research and 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 information that you guys are, are collecting so
2: and if you visit the eyes wide website you'll find a link to
0: our questionnaires. perfect that'll be great we'll, we'll make sure we make have sure a we link. Have the link in there adam thank you uh You know, this is, as Tim mentioned earlier, the me search piece. I mean, there was a me search thing for me on this just because, you know, it's been an interesting journey because I've only really realized this probably in the last four or five years that there is a difference between how I view things in my imagination or not view things in my imagination versus the vast majority of people. And so wonderful insights from you. And thank you for, as Tim said, you are articulate and able to communicate this in a way that I think uh Everybody is uh, able to understand and get get value from. So, thank you. Well, thanks so
2: much, a Pleasure thanks. to speak.
0: Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Adam. Have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever comes into Tim's very visual brain and my pretty blind eye brain. There we go. <laughs> Yeah, I we are different in that way, aren't we? We are. Well, and I I have to give credit to to you because you were the one that when we were at uh, one of the you know meetups that we were doing, and you had parked your car and you had forgot something, or we had to go back to it, and you were describing to me where it was on your car, and I'm like going, well, that's pretty. That's pretty specific. And and you were like, going, well, yeah, I see it right there. And I'm going, what do you mean you see it right there? And you go, well, yeah, I close my eyes and there's the car and where it's parked. Nope. Really? And I'm like going, you, you, no, you, it's just kind of like a metaphor, right? You no, you were going, no, I can see where the car is parked and all of these things. And I'm going, and the way that you described it to me was really one of the first times I realized that my metaphor like everybody talking about you know memory as a metaphor wasn't really a metaphor it was like no you're actually seeing that in your brain and being able to kind of pull up a picture and i so can't it's do that just,
1: it's just in the last five years that you've actually come to just realize my gosh
0: this is actually a thing for you yeah it was probably back in 2018 19 so wow Wow, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, so it has been literally from my perspective this understanding has blossomed in those those years before that it was again we all live in our own heads and I can't live <laughs> in your head. I can't see what you see. I can't remember what how you remember. And so when you describe that, I can only see it or understand it through, you know, how I do things. And so of course when You're talking about, yeah, I picture this in my head. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can. That's a it's a verbal metaphor for how we kind of process this information. But in fact, it's not (laughs) for for most people, for most for for, for most
1: people. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So so where do you want to I mean, this is your this is. I'm so glad that you reached out to Adam and that Adam agreed to be on. I thought he was a terrific guest and really loved the conversation. Well, this was this research, is, right? This is it this was, is this totally. uh,
0: I, I we <laughs> sorry for the folks who have to put up with this who are like going, why are you why are you doing this very specific thing? It only it it impacts what we it, Adam was saying that on the aphantasia side, 1% to 2%. On the hyperphantasia side, 2 to 3%. So, right. you know, at most 5% of the population. At opposite ends of the spectrum. At opposite ends yeah. of the spectrum, right? So yeah. it's interesting. So I have obviously done um, additional research beyond this, this conversation. And that VVIQ, the visual visualizations uh, test that you do, I've taken that. What's interesting is that most people skew to the right. So most people skew. So if we think of a bell curve of that distribution between phantasia and hyperphantasia, um, a there's more people at the hyperphantasia side of that scale, right. and it skews right. towards that side. So people in that you know one to five scale. If you know three would be the absolute normal curve distribution curve where that comes down, it's gonna skew to the right of that it leans right. So there's less people in the world like me, and even less people who are kind of like me, um, and more people who have that better visualization on the on the well and for for relative numbers,
1: where does that compare to like say uh
0: colorblindness? It's it well, it's about the same, right? So colorblindness, I think, is three to six percent. Um according to the notes that you've subsequently put in the, in our show notes here. So I will trust that you got those from a credible source and we'll go from there. Yes. Yeah.
1: It was a credible source.
0: (laughs) I promise. So, I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, And I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons is one is, is again, this idea that we all live in our own heads and therefore It's hard for us to get out of our heads and to put ourselves in somebody else's shoes to understand how they're viewing the world. Again, thinking about colorblindness. What's interesting about colorblindness is they've done, you can see visual pictures of what a person with colorblindness sees, right? And they haven't really done that with uh, aphantasia there is we'll have in the show notes uh, a, a really cool kind of picture of a horse that has six different images and kind of take a look at that because that gives you a good idea of when people kind of think about a horse these are kind of different representations of how clear that picture is, and so within again on this spectrum on a of, on a, a spectrum, it's not a full spectrum. It's it's just kind of a, a a simple way. Again, this is relatively new. This research it started in yeah. 2015, so it wasn't. It, oh, it, it, so, so Tim, cool. I couldn't even name this before 2015, even if I had <laughs> wanted to. So. That that is cool. I also think that this is. It, it reminds me a little
1: bit, just just a bit. It kind of touches on to theory of mind. How we we believe that we we can sort of that as we become mature adults, that we have some more than just sympathetic feelings. We kind of have an understanding of how someone else might feel. They fall, they cut their you know they they fall on their hand, they cut their palm, and we go, oh, that must hurt. Like we we and we can sort of get this the experience that someone else is having, but with these aphantasic and hyperphantasic experiences at the opposite ends the average population isn't thinking about this isn't imagining that when you and i are having a conversation and i say well don't you remember this you you could remember
0: it but the way
1: that you'll remember it's going to be very different from the way i remember yeah and that could impact our conversation
0: or or if you're doing an exercise like in a workshop that says all right close your eyes and visualize this, you know, which is oftentimes things it's one, it's, it's interesting, like in meditation and different things, um, you know, visualization, right. A lot of that is visualization, which I can't do the, the, uh, what's the memory technique where you go in and you're supposed to visualize like walking into your house and, putting something where you put your keys and doing different pieces of that yeah I, yeah. I, it, it has I, I a don't name. know the name of it I, yep. I can't remember what that name is and I remember for years trying to to do that and I'm like going I just it doesn't work it I can't get it now I understand why because I'm not I'm not doing it because not it's, not, it, that's it's right. not in my brain the same way that it is in the brain with others who are doing the memory technique. Oh, if I just walk into the house and where I put my keys, that's where I'm going to remember, you know, this story that we just heard or this different piece of the, the right, thing. So, right. yeah, it's fascinating. And I think that has implications, not just in our personal life, but if you are a leader in an organization, yeah, if you are doing any sort of training, if you are a salesperson, if you lots of different things within organizations and that has an impact on that. So, yeah, I I just want to double down
1: on that when we, this is a diversity and inclusive kind of an issue. (laughs) I, I I don't, I I don't mean to be overstating it, but seriously, we need to, the leaders need to be self-reflective and they need to be empathetic. And I think the more we understand about the diversity of the way you a, a brain processes information, the better we can be
0: at communicating with each other. So are we going to have to make this a woke issue now that like you're no, going no to have to take, oh my gosh, we're going to have to do the aphantasia <laughs> training at, at our organ. No, no, we're not. <laughs> no, no, we're not
1: going. I'm, I'm not advocating that, yeah. but I, but I think it's just one, it's another star
0: in the constellation of what makes us unique. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of putting it is that, and I think this is a Bigger, broader piece is that that constellation of stars that make up who we are. We think we know what the constellation is, but yeah. if you have seen a picture from the James Webb Telescope and you kind of look at that that blank wow. sky behind the between the two stars, it's filled. It is filled with other stars, and that's exactly <sighs> yeah. what yeah. we as people are. Is that yeah? There's some bright stars that shine out when we look at somebody. But you have to understand that behind those stars are a multitude of other stars that we can't see. And I yeah. think that's a really cool piece of that. So, yeah, agreed. All right. Well, I think we can maybe wrap up this whole episode on that constellation kind of opponent there. Um, so thank you, folks. Uh, we hope that our conversation with Adam helps bring some light, shine some of that starlight on this fascinating <laughs> and diverse way that we connect ourselves to this amazing world we live in. Aphantasia, really impacts the way that the world is experienced, at least for me and others like me. And we're glad that we can share Adam's work with you. So maybe you can understand it a little bit better. Yeah.
1: you know, And as we mentioned in the introduction, we really just want to say thank you to listeners who take time to give us those quick five-star ratings or short reviews, because together these two things end up helping a lot of other people find behavioral grooves when they're not really sure what show they should listen to. So thank you to everyone who does
0: that. Yeah, so we hope that this conversation helps you visualize in your brain how you can go out and find your groove.